Sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. This is such a surprise. I wasn't happy expecting birthday, it. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy oh, God. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> I didn't tell anyone I didn't want any big deal made out of it. Still playing with toys.net presents The Ghostbusters Interdimensional Crossroad, the biggest podcast since 1909. So News, interviews, and commentary on everything Ghostbusters. Are you the key? Here are your hosts, Troy Benjamin and Chris Stewart. Don't look at me. I think these people are completely nuts. Chris, I'm excited about this one. Man, this is going to be a fun show. This is one of the shows that when we started the podcast, uh, this was one of the guests that was on our first handful of names that we were like, oh, we should talk to blah, 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 yeah. and blah, 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 blah. And uh, this this is one of them. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty like accomplished at the moment. Bill Murray, unlikely. Scratch. <laughs> Ivan Reitman, maybe one day. Mm-hmm. Ernie Hudson, okie doke. And then, yeah, David Craig. Yeah, David Crane's been, uh, he's been floating on our list now for the past two years and uh, was was tickled to no ends when I reached out to him and he uh, agreed to, to talk with us and lend yeah. us some of his time because I know he's he's an in-demand guy and, and actually he's kind of, you know, out of the spotlight now. Uh, back in the 80s and, and even the early 90s, he was making the press rounds and was still involved in the game developing industry, but... Uh, not not so much anymore. So no, a bit of a, a bit of a recluse. But he yeah. um, he occupies a strange, not strange, strange, strange has connotations. An interesting place in Ghostbusters history because while he didn't work on the movie directly, he is in his own right a big name in his own his own media area right. of media. Yeah. And his version of Ghostbusters was a big deal. So. You know, it's like I wasn't kidding when I said it was like the guys who made the movie, yeah, and the guy who made the video game, yeah, like, yeah, not not exactly on par. One had to lead to the other, but close, like a close second. You know, maybe a third. Then we go, you know, on par, on par with Ray Parker Jr. and the, the, you know, the 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 song sort of. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean. Uh, especially for us uh, that that were of a, a certain age when Ghostbusters came out, we're alive is what you're trying to say. <laughs> Those of us who are alive still. Uh, Those of us who are old enough to be uh, creating long-term memories. <laughs> yeah, Those I mean, of us whose brains had developed to the point where. Well, and the, we, like I would, I played the Commodore 64 version of Ghostbusters. Uh, probably more times than I watched my taped version off of ABC Sunday Night at the Movies. I probably played the game so much more because it was, you know, uh, you would go from playing with the real Ghostbusters action figures to hopping in the chair and and playing on the computer, and it was just part of the obsession. <laughs> we should start the episode with that. That would be oh, pretty absolutely. <laughs> truth be told, that scared the crap out of me as a kid. Like, yeah, because you weren't expecting you it. You weren't right? expecting like, it. Yeah, and computers were not supposed to talk to you in a human voice. Well, and loading the game because I had the floppy disk version, and loading the game probably took three to five minutes, I want to say. So, you know, yeah. as a kid, you would uh, type in the load command, and the game would start loading, and then you'd go do something, and you'd wait to hear that Ghostbusters thing. But you know, you're yeah, a kid, you're home alone, and you hear that, and it scares you. There was that. 
Uh, let's see if I can find the progression here. There was that, and then I remember... Was it Neuromancer? It was one of the William Gibson stuff had been turned into a game, oh. a cyberpunk game. On, I, and I think it was the C64 as well. Right. See? And it had Devo sampled into a loop, a tiny loop at the beginning of its game. And then Skate or Die, right. possibly Skate or Die Two on the on the the NES. On the yeah, and really like not designed to do that. They did not have. Uh, I mean, they had their limited MIDI setup, so you had to basically. And uh, Dave, David talks about this a little bit. You basically had to create a driver to tell this thing how to do what you wanted it to do. It's like you make sounds. So here's the driver to get you to make sure. a certain, certain bunch of sounds. In this case, I don't need you to pretend you're a horn. I don't need you to make that an <laughs> FM beep. What I need you to do is to do some... I need you to take this this encoded bit. And this is the amazing part. It's like the amount of, of memory they had to work with. Like this kind of, like we make fun of it now, but that's why that thing sound you know was very well, very, yeah. I mean, very crunchy. Wasn't I, I mean, of very weren't the the floppies were like five hundred and twelve k. What what was the capacity yeah. of those? It wasn't that yep. much. No, it wasn't at all. Was it five hundred and twelve k? I don't even yeah, think it was the, that. Was it? Well, because the it was one point four on the hard floppies. Was that right? right yeah, right. I think you're right. Oh my god, it wasn't meds. that long ago, but it shows you yeah, how well, long this this format has been abandoned. Yeah. yeah. But, but the uh, five the five inch I think they were I think they maxed out at five twelve because I think it was a big deal that I had the five hundred and twelve K disk drive that could read those higher yeah. capacity discs. But yeah. And um so Ghostbusters is an example of he stretched it in areas like uh, um, it's it um like an early economy. It's weird. Like if you, there's different parts of that game. Like so, Spy Hunter was at roughly the same time, but it was running on a cabinet. Do you know what I mean? Like right. it was dedicated to just that top down running. But he had a game where he had a little bit of that top down car running. Uh, he also had uh the the economy and the garage to the economy system. It. Yeah, totally. He had the account system to f- basically save the game because you could not save the game, but there was this workaround way to kind of dial it all down into right. a, a, an account string, which you could call up later. Um, like the map, proto, the map, proto, yeah, it a proto yeah. Grand Theft Auto, like the top down of the first, uh, the first uh, Grand Theft Auto game, which you know by that point was. Let's say fifteen years later. Sure. Let's say yeah. So fifteen years later, he uh, earlier he had the very, very simple. Let's not let's not you know uh, uh, you know let's not try and build it up too much. But, oh, but he still. made this first attempt at a city map that you could drive around to go do something and uh, and you chose where you wanted i mean it's not like the mario 3 map where you only had two options you could go yeah. up to that level or right to that level i mean you were able yeah. to freely roam wherever you wanted which you was nice around but, that entire map yeah. you, and chase things so like you know if stay puff was out there or if there was a ghost running around you could chase after it on the on the streets to, until you got to it or you could uh you know choose your own path to run to a building that was calling for you know for 
for Ghostbusters help. And then, you know, finally, um, the actual, you know, busting ghosts with the, you know, uh, containment streams yeah. and the trap and, you know, fighting, fighting the big boss on the, at the end of the game. It was kind of impressive. I mean, I know, sure. uh, what's, um, uh, uh, Mr. Man of angry video game nerd. Rolf, oh, right. Uh, right. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. Damn, I, angry I video game that. nerd. Yeah. I've spoken to, I've spoken to him. I, I <laughs> At the moment, I can't remember his name, but uh, uh, I mean, obviously, his his whole thing is that you know what was frustrating about it becomes the focus of his review, and it had it had a few the the running under the jumpy Stay Puff was a little <laughs> it was finicky. hard it was, it was hard. Very, very hard some might call it finicky others may call it hard yeah. um, uh, the the little, theme little, song repeating over and over, but again, you're at a lot you don't have a lot of space you can't put <laughs> multiple songs on you there. can't uh, and to be fair. The real uh, theme song kind of repeats on its own. Yeah, it's so true. It's, it's true. Uh, and I still, I mean, I um, love that what they were able to do with that uh, version. You know, it's, it's, I, I still enjoy it. I still kind of hear it, echoes of it uh, now because it, it you heard yeah. it like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times when you would play the game. Well, I think at, at least once a year in the right company, I will hear somebody go, oh, mur, 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 uh, 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 exactly, right? Like it's, it's so good. It's oh, and, that so was, good. and we forgot about that. That was the most amazing, like that's, this is bar level trivia, that he put the the space bar in. So as the little meaty, doot, 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 you know, when you got to the right part, you could hit the space bar and get the little go. And he would say, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I love that game and, and I love the fact that we got David. So, um, yes, why we, are we, we yapping? Dive. We should have him come in here and chat with us. Let him tell us more about it. <laughs> All right. Ghostbusters! <laughs> So, uh, David, uh, this is, you know, being a Ghostbusters podcast, we will, of course, be picking your brain about the Ghostbusters game in a second, but, you know, we'd be remiss not to talk about your programming and design life prior to the Ghostbusters because, you know, you worked on so many amazing things, including Pitfall and the 2600 and, and left and founded Activision. Um, so how, how and when did you end up at Atari and what was the climate at the company about that time? Well, <clears throat> I, um... I was working as an engineer at National Semiconductor right out of college <clears throat> and living in a, an apartment complex in Sunnyvale, California. And I've been playing tennis since I was six years old. I was um, playing tournament tennis at the time and um, playing doubles with Al Miller. Yeah. And he and I lived in the same apartment complex, and we played tennis just about every night. And one night he um, came by, we played tennis, and then afterward handed me this ad he had written for the local newspaper and said, proofread this for me. I'm about to put it in the paper. And it was advertising for video game programmers at Atari. And um, I had been at National for about a year and was basically um, done with that job. I had done everything I went there to do. And so I said, well, this looks kind of interesting. So that night, starting at about 8 o'clock at night, I went back to National, and on a computer that I had built from scratch, I mean, you have to understand, this is 1970, what, 7? 77. Um, 
and I had built a computer based on a microprocessor and written a word processing program on it. I used that to write up a one-page resume and uh, went into Atari the next morning and interviewed, came back to National and got a phone call that afternoon offering me a job and uh, gave my notice. So basically from one night reading uh, Al Miller's ad (laughs) to uh, the next day, less than 24 hours later, I had a job offer at Atari. Boy, fortuitous. Um, so when, when you walked into Atari, I've, I've often heard stories of, you know, that, that building and the, the climate there. And, uh, when you first walked in there, what was your impression of the company? Well, I'm not going to flat out say that everything you've heard is a myth because, you know, there were some crazy times prior to when I got there, there was supposedly a hot tub in the... (laughs) in the, you know, main entry or whatever. Right, and, yeah. And a lot of drug use in other de- departments, but not where I was going to work. Um, the guys I worked with um, were very professional, very um, dedicated to creating video games. And basically, you know, we were creating video games for almost the first time in many ways, uh, innovating every day and working our butts off. And... Um, you know, so it was it was a much more professional environment than anything you ever hear about, and I think that's just because there are a few people who um, treated it a little differently, and they're the ones everybody listens to, and they're the funny stories. <laughs> sure, well, that's that's why I asked because I wondered if you walked into the lobby and there were people in a hot tub, and you know, oh my God, what what have I gotten myself into? But um, nope. so how how many people were on the team when you? F- when you first started working there, and I'm, I'm imagining that there's not that many of you, and you're working around the clock to, to work on these games? Well, there weren't that many. Um, there were probably seven or eight of us making games, and then we hired a few more. Um, and people were coming and going. There's some people who were there at the time that left short, shortly after the time I got there. And generally, it wasn't a 24-hour job. I mean, I've certainly worked all-nighters many, many times in my career. But at the time, it was, you know, much more um, come in at a reasonable hour, work for a reasonable job, and, you know, leave at a reasonable time. Although quite often we would hang around later and do things such as get on a modem and dial into the PDP-10 at MIT and play adventure and things like that (laughs) existed at the time. And so what were some of the first games that you were in development on when you when you first started there? Well, you know, the Atari 2600 was designed really so that Atari could sell their arcade hits at home. Right. It was, let's make a home system and put Pong on it and put Combat or Tank on it, because that was one of their arcade games. And, and in fact, if you look at the hardware, it's pretty much designed to play Tank and Pong, and anything else that you can make the hardware do is gravy. Um, So it's almost like you could say that's why it was cartridge programmable, so they could sell a cartridge for Tank and a cartridge for Pong and maybe a few others. (laughs) And there were how many thousands of games made for it afterwards? That was mostly, you know, luck. Um, They made the hardware... um, very capable for the day, almost by accident. 
um, which we can get into if you're interested in a, in a later later question. But your question of what kinds of games, I was sat down, given a manual about 30 pages long, and say, this is how the hardware works. Go go make something. Yeah. There was very little direction. Um, we knew that they had arcade games that hadn't been done in the home yet. And um, so I did Outlaw just as my first experiment to see how to make the hardware work. And, of course, I could have done a far better job in just a few months later after I knew a lot more about it. But I did, did finish the game and make it playable. And, um, you know, for example, I did a slot machine game because I knew my mother liked to play do slot machines when she went to Vegas. <laughs> and I said, here, why don't you do this at home where it's free? And I made it into a published product. And the goal was just so that she could have a game to play. Uh, probably my most um, accomplished game was Canyon Bomber, only because in Canyon Bomber you had both the arcade game Canyon Bomber and the arcade game Depth Charge represented in a single 2K byte cartridge, which is pretty good when you consider they're two $3,000 coin-op games with all the hardware in them. Right. And and um, the lowly 2600 and 2K bytes of program, um, I was able to do both of those games. Huh. And while pushing the limitations of the control of the, the console and, huh, that's, I mean, it has to be tricky trying to figure out, uh, going into the development cycle, and I'm sure you have all of these great ideas, and uh, and then you're trying to then figure out how to shoehorn it into the hardware then. Yeah, if you're designing an arcade game, for example, um, you have a pretty standard piece of hardware that they start with and then you come up with a game design and you're working along and you say hey, wait a minute i need 10 more sprites and so you tell the engineer put 10 more sprites in and then you know add some hardware and add a daughter board or whatever they have to do uh, with the 2600 you were designing a game that was already in the home and it's already at grandma's house you can't change the hardware so you had to be very creative with what you did with the software and uh, the chip designer for the 2600 chip um, was in the lab periodically, and he'd come walking around, and he would just stand behind us and shake his head and, and mutter under his breath because he he would say that he had never intended his hardware to do the things that we were making it do. But as long as we could make it do something new, we could make a new game on it. <laughs> uh, so how how long are you there before you make the decision to to leave and form Activision? I was there for two years, and the last year, um, Atari made probably not a very good decision of taking its top game designers and putting them on the operating system for the Atari 800, just because they needed programmers. Oh. And um, a lot of us were not making games at the time, um, except maybe prototype games for the 800 for testing. But... Um, at that point, you know, a lot of problems were happening at Atari, and we were thinking about leaving anyway. And and the four of us who founded Activision were pretty much the group of four at Atari, just hung around, went to lunch together, that sort of thing, and kibitzed on each other's games. So, you know, it was logical for us to sit down and say, well, this is not very fun anymore. What are we going to do? And, you know, a number of um, things came together. We went to a lawyer and said, which should we, you know, incorporate or can we be a partnership and 
Okay, I said, well, if you're just going to make games and sell them back to Atari, you can probably stay a partnership. But if you're going to make games and publish, manufacture, you're going to need to be a corporation. Hmm. And then he also said, and by the way, I've got this guy, his name is Jim Levy, who's kind of thinking along the same lines. And um, if you want to talk to this guy, he's a good business guy. You guys are great creative guys. Why don't you get together? And we did, got together a barbecue over at Jim Levy's house and made some plans and ended up uh, founding Activision with Venture Capital. Hmm. And, and so what what was the mandate, what was sort of the mission statement for, for Activision as a company? What was going to make you different and, and inspire you to create these games? Well, there are a couple issues when you do something like that. One, you're now working for yourself, so you're going to work a lot harder. And that's when the all-nighters and late nights started coming in, just because of that. Um, second, you don't have a stable of arcade hits to make games out of. So now, by definition, you're going to have to start creating original game concepts. And that wasn't daunting. We believed in our creative ability, and you know, no problem, we'll do that. Um, and of course, as is you know, well understood, we also thought that um, a video game is a creative piece of work, like being an author of the book or whatever, and um, thought we would get uh, author credit. Jim Levy took that and ran with it because he had come from the record business. Sure. And, you know, we're, we're quite often described as want to be rock stars or whatever, but the issue was not that. It was more just a matter of credit for creative work. And um, so it was more along the lines of publishing a book. But it, because Levy came from the uh, record business, it kind of felt a little more the other way. Now, yeah. That said, of course, all of my quote-unquote fans were 12-year-old boys, so it wasn't <laughs> similar to what rock stars, the kind of treatment rock stars get when they go out in public. But um, at, at least it um, it set the stage for what, you know, the ent entire video game industry became, and that is the idea of giving credit to the creators. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, that's that's how I knew your name. I was one of those 12-year-old boys uh, that idled you as a rock star, uh, but I, b because your name was on the packaging, on the cover of the game, uh, because in the pamphlet that came in there with the instructions, you know, it said that it was a game by David Crane that... It, it it really was. It was giving you guys the credit that was due for all of the hard work that you were putting into it and, and dreaming up these games in some instances like, um, you know, Pitfall, obviously, and uh, Toy Bazaar was Activision, wasn't it? I remember Toy Bazaar having uh, an authorship on it as well. Yeah, Toy Bazaar, I believe, was Mark Turmel who went on to great fame in uh, arcade games. Yeah. Now, just because some of the listeners we have now <laughs> have kind of a modern view about how games are made, Getting your name on a game makes even more sense uh, uh, in the with these earlier games, just because it was a lot more one brain, one game, was it not? Or like the concept of of larger teams was hadn't really come around yet. Yeah, we had uh, you know it was one man, one game. Um, we had to come up with the concept for the game, sketch it out, figure out how to make the Atari Twenty Six Hundred do it come up with some new display techniques sometimes if necessary to make the game possible. Uh, quite often you had to modify the concept to make it um, shoehorn into what the Atari 2600 was capable of doing. And then you wrote every line of code, uh, did all the 
playtesting, all the bug testing, um, made every sound effect, drew every pixel of art, and eventually wrote the manual and handed it off to the manual writers, you know, intact. So basically, um, to, to do that job, you really needed both left and right brain skills. You had to be creative and extremely technical at the same time. So it, it was it was a, a crucible. It was, um, you know, there a rare group of people who managed to be able to do that. And, uh, yeah, so we wanted our name on the game. And, in fact, there was a benefit to the game publisher as well. I mean, how many times you walk into the bookstore and see a new book by Tom Clancy, you don't look at the title, you look at the, the author yeah. and you say, I'll, right. I'll read that. That's something you don't even really see, see these days, because even on smaller scale projects, like, say, on mobile and stuff like that, even if it's a single programmer uh, project, they're quite often, you know, uh, hiring out or buying off the shelf, you know, art assets or sound assets or whatever. Yeah, using so. an engine or something too. Yeah. Well, so, so David, knowing that it was, you were sort of an army of one using both sides of your brain, uh, tell us about Pitfall. How did that originate? And, um, you know, what, what was your inspiration and then how did that, that game develop? Well, the primary drive behind Pitfall was my desire to put a realistic human character into a game. Um, most of the games back then were you know, jet planes and tanks and, and easy-to-render elements that were you know, non-organic um, because it's a lot harder in eight pixels to draw something that looks human. Right. So I'd spent a lot of time experimenting with creating a little running man um, you know, I'd walk around the lab and sketch the position of my legs and see if I could make that happen in 8 bits or even 16 bits, which sometimes I had the opportunity to go to. And, um, and so I ended up coming up with this little running man and um, tried to put him into a game and did some experimentation. I started with this cops and robbers game. and He actually looked pretty good because I could make him black and white striped, which kind of like what you saw in Kaboom later. Yeah. But um, that I did that, and then, you know, you're trying to chase this guy around, and it just um, didn't turn into a game. There was There's always problems of, can the 2600 display enough objects to make something fun? And I was using so many objects <clears throat> just to make a little running man that <clears throat> I couldn't actually find a way to make that game fun. So I put it on the shelf and went on and did something else and probably did Dragster at that point. And then came back and looked at the little running man and wasn't able to figure out how to get him to, to work and went on and did Freeway or whatever. Um, at some point then I just sat down and I said, all right, it's about time I figure out how to use this little running man. And um, I did. I sat down with a blank sheet of paper and, and said, I drew a little stick figure on it, said, this is my little running man. And um, where is he running? I just drew a couple lines, and I said, all right, he's running on a path, and where's the path? Let's put him in a jungle. Um, Indiana Jones had been out, so jungle adventures were kind of appropriate. Sure, makes sense. I, yeah, so I drew a couple trees, and then why is he running? Put the rolling logs in. What's he chasing? I put in the treasures and some hazards to jump over. And... That was became the concept. Um, 
the nod to the 2600 hardware was to do it in a screen-to-screen method. So the, the, the view is side view, and if you run off the right side of the screen, you run on to the left side of the screen. And the beauty of that is, as far as the hardware is concerned, it can draw something completely different on the next screen. You don't have to limit yourself to one background like the tanks drive around in the, the maze of blocks or right. the jet fighters, you know, with the, the uh, clunky clouds. You can then create a different kinds of scene as you run off the right edge of one and onto the left edge of the next. Um, so that that opened up just you know, universes of possibilities for creating a game, and that's called the side view scroller right now but in fact it wasn't even scrolling it was screen to screen switching um for the atari 2600 but um you know that was one of if not the first one of those and running and jumping and climbing became the platform game genre and you know i knew as i was doing it that this is not only something new this has got great potential you know thousands of different game ideas yeah i mean and and originated just with that one little sprite walk cycle uh which is is so funny the franchise that it became all of the games that it became and it was just just your idea to get that walk cycle down that's so cool gotta get that little running man on the screen yeah. <laughs> um so uh, i mean we do have to jump to ghostbusters because we are ghostbusters nerds um and uh, but i did i wanted to get your viewpoint on video game adaptations because film adaptations to video games were very difficult in the 80s just as they continue to be to this day you know w- what are some of the inherent challenges of trying to develop titles to tie in with films like a ghostbusters like like something like that well in the 80s and on the 80s hardware um, the biggest concern was what the hardware was capable of doing. So when we created an original title, we did that with the hardware's capabilities in mind. If you come from a known property, um, like the attempt to make Pac-Man on the 2600, for example, um, you say, well, gee, this is, this is already defined, and it's defined using a different set of hardware. Right. And now how do I make it? you know, work on this particular hardware. That's not the best way to go about creating an original game. Um, So a lot of people would have that problem. They'd look and watch a movie and they'd say, okay, gee, this is a great scene. Let's put it in, put this scene in the game. And just trying to put that scene on the game takes up more of the ROM than you have. So you have all sorts of problems from that standpoint. Um, When I was doing Ghostbusters, it kind of fell in my lap. Um, we had people in the company and Activision going out and looking at potential licenses uh, for marketing reasons and found Ghostbusters and got a hold of the script and read it and said, this could be a blockbuster. This, you know, these guys are really funny. They've got their, their Saturday night live history. And, and if they, uh, can really pull this off, it could be really good. We never really thought it would be as big a cult classic as it came, but it looked like it was it was really going to be possible. And so the marketing people came back to the lab and said, we have this opportunity. We think we could get this license. Can we do it? Do we want it? Can we do it? And, um, you know, no movie game had ever been successful at that point. So, of course, there was that trepidation, but I wouldn't let that stop me. I um, 
thought about it, and I said, well, you know, we've got a couple problems. One, we're really late on the process. We need to get this. If we're going to get a game on this property, we're going to have to do it fast because this could come out in the theaters, and three months later, nobody will have ever heard of it if it didn't mm. do really well. We'd better get this product to the market. That means we can't start a product right now and and hope to meet the you know the release of the film or the time when it's going to be popular. Um, and I was working on an original title that I was had entitled Car Wars, and the idea was multiple different scenes, um, a garage where you would equip your car using what I think was probably the first in-game economy ever done, uh, buying, collecting credits from doing tasks and buying equipment and adding weapons onto your car or whatever. Then a top view um, chase scene where you're fighting with another car and, and, you know, shooting with that and, and possibly a um, long range scan, a grid view of some kind where you could see where other people are on the highways and that sort of thing. And uh, I said, well, you know, I could probably retask all of the code that I've written so far on Car Wars and be halfway to a Ghostbusters game. Hmm. So conceptually, in essence, what I did was I didn't design a Ghostbusters game. I designed a game that I knew was going to be fun anyway. I mean, I was designing this game, and it was going to be great. And designed a game that was going to be fun and put it in the Ghostbusters universe, kind of wrapped just the Ghostbusters concept around it, rather than trying to simulate some scene from the movie or whatever. Um, although, of course, we had to have the Marshmallow Man and other things like that. But um, So the, the core gameplay was original gameplay that didn't need Ghostbusters. It would have stood alone just by itself. Um, then wrap it around Ghostbusters, the concept, and so when people uh, loved the movie, they might see the logo on the box and give it a chance, and then take it home and find out it's fun. <laughs> but if it wasn't fun, it would never work, but at least you've got that, that little bit of advantage. So that's, that's how to make a movie game, is you make a game that would be just as fun if it didn't have any of the movie scenes, the movie logos, or the movie characters, and uh, then add those things just to put the game into the film's universe. Hmm. So that's uh, where the because I know Chris was wondering too the things like the the vacuum cleaner for the car and the marshmallow bait and were, were those elements that you already had in place for Car Wars that you then had to adapt into the the Ghostbusters world. I had the system for customizing the car, and in essence, I was planning on making you earn money and buy these things and have a little um, a shop where you buy these things, things you've seen in in-game economy games you know, ever since. But um, given the fact that I had a system, all I had to do was change the graphics. So yeah, you, you went and you customized your car, and you put in the ghost vacuum, and you loaded up with traps and whatever. Um, the game wasn't as deep as it could have been if I you know, had an extra six months to work on it, so I, I did kind of rush a lot of those things. There wasn't a lot of choice in customizing your vehicle and such. It was there, but there weren't a lot of options. A lot of things I would have done differently if there was time. Sure. But it was, um, it was a head start that um, 
made it possible to get the game out on time. You, uh, if I understand correctly, had six weeks on the project? Is that right, or is that just internet lore at this point? I don't, I don't think that's correct. I mean, I've done a project. Boy and His Blob was a project that was done pretty much in six weeks. Wow. And um, that was a nightmare. I actually moved out to New Jersey and slept in a, in a flop house and worked 16 hours a day until the last few days where I didn't sleep at all. Um, and Gary Kitchen did half the game. He did the Blobalonia level while I was doing Earth. So we were collaborating, we were working together, we were not sleeping. Um, that That's definitely a six-week project. And, you know, that um, E.T. was done by Howard Warshaw, and he had about five weeks. Right. There are, there are scheduled nightmare projects. This was one <laughs> where I probably spent six months on it. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh. So this then... This answers a lot of questions because I was trying to rectify a number of different things I had read, including things like you had uh, read the script and seen some production photos, but had not, you know, seen any of the movie. And I was trying to figure out how that worked out, given you know it when it was released, and if you had six months, by which point I thought, well, surely they had something to show them. It's six months then, so you basically. Uh, got to work on it just inside of 1984. Would that be about right? Um, if, yeah, I don't. I don't have a recollection of the start and end time. Just kind of the process. Uh, right. We did rent a movie theater and see the movie at some point, and I don't think the game was finished yet. Um, but it was certainly defined. I mean, there was right. like I was going to be able to see the movie and make some changes. Um, so yeah, a lot of it was done from reading the script and seeing still images. When when a movie company is is trying to license their product out, you know, they have a packet and they have uh, well at least back back then now of course it's all video and trailers and such, but they would have a packet of images, still images and some pictures of the sets and some camera ready art for logos and stuff like that. So we had some of that information that we would get from the studio. Um, but it was well-defined before I saw the film. Right. Mm. Then this leads me to one last bit that I had heard that may now still be true, was that the last week was spent on the the theme song and the main menu. Yeah, I... Um, the one thing that I always do, uh, to the consternation of many people, is I I won't call a game finished until I've put some special touches into it. I mean, it, it really has to be cool. I have to like it. It has to stand out. Uh, yeah, and I was finishing up, and I, I had um, Hillary Mills, one of the first video game artists, had drawn the full-screen Ghostbusters logo, which was beautiful, and I said, well, this is great. This will be the title screen. And I had Russell Lieblick, one of the first video game composers, um, do an arrangement of the theme song and um, another group uh, work on being able to put digitized audio into the game. Um, I had created my own digital audio driver for Transformers, uh, but I think that was later. Hmm. Cause I'm not I, sure. This, I this I, was a first, wasn't it? That voice synthesization at the beginning of, of the game? 
Um, it was certainly early. I mean, I don't keep track of every first, you know, everything that we did. We were innovating every day, um, did things that had never been done before. But um, there was a third-party company that thought that they could make a um, digitized audio system for the Commodore 64, and so one of our people went out and checked them out and and got a bunch of people together to yell Ghostbusters for the that one little sound bite. And so I'm sitting there, and I said, oh, I got all this stuff, and what we really need is a, um, a Follow the Bouncing Ball um, sing-along right. for a title screen. And uh, I was working on the game. I was fixing bugs. I was adding the last things, so I didn't have time. So I called Gary Kitchen and his group out in New Jersey, and I said, look, see if you guys can take two days and write a follow the bouncing ball thing with the lyrics. And then I set it up so you hit the space bar and it yelled Ghostbusters. And I mean, you all know what it, what it did. It's just one of those things that even if it's 1030 at night on the night before the thing is due, if I see something that's cool that I can't stand to have the game go out without, um, I'll go ahead and implement it. So yeah, Hmm. that, that all came together in the last few days of the project. Oh, how funny. Yeah, the the first Ghostbusters at the beginning where he he says it and he laughs. Uh, I, th- I think I told you in the email when I'd reached out to you, I, I had all of the loading sounds on my floppy drive memorized, and then I knew right before he was about to do his Ghostbusters, ah, ha, ha, ha. And it, was, it always it reminded me that the game was ready and I could uh, jump in and, and start playing. It was It was a cool little touch, yeah. This was after load, quote, star, quote, comma, eight, comma, one? <laughs> yep, comma, eight, comma, one. Got to load off that floppy drive, yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, you mentioned that you guys were innovating. You were doing a whole lot of firsts, uh, certainly with the voice and, and all of that. But uh, what really struck me about this game is, is it was a predecessor to all of these open-world games that, you know, have become... Uh, su- such time consumers uh, in the the modern gaming world. Um, how did you account for that when you had this open map that the player could go to any house uh, on on any place on the screen? Uh, was that a challenge, especially from a programmatic point of view? Oh, I'd like to tell you I could think about that, but uh, you know, it's just one of those things. You have the idea and you do it. I don't remember it being all that difficult. <laughs> just you know, day in the life of yeah, think think it up and then execute it. Exactly. Huh. Um, well, and you know the the other thing that I, I you touched on was the monetization. But uh, instead of having a game that you could continue or that you could, uh, if you died, you could start over. Uh, I loved how you got an account number at the end. Was that part of the Car Wars uh, engine that you had been working on to come back with your accumulated wealth and just really stock up your car? It was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, again, one of those, I, somewhere, somehow I've got one of the brochures that has my chicken scratch uh, account numbers all over it, uh, with, with a bunch of monetary totals on it, which is, uh, I don't know, one of those cherished things you have from, from being a kid. But, um, so at what point, so are you developing for the Commodore 64 or are you still developing for the 2600 when you're doing Ghostbusters? Um, I think we had moved on pretty much to Commodore 64, Atari 800, the various, you know, 8-bit computers at yeah. that point. And and so at what point because there were so many ports of this game because of what Ghostbusters became, when when did it get farmed out for NES and Master System and and all of those platforms? 
I did just the Commodore 64 version and then moved on to something new. Um, the, a port is not something that you need the original game creator on. Right. Because you've already made all the creative decisions on how the game is going to play. And a play, playable game is about as good a specification as you could start with if you're going to make a game. Sure. They make one just like this, make all the same decisions. So um, I know Dan Kitchen did the Atari 2600, which of course was the big, the bigger challenge than than anything else. Trying to do that on the 2600, he did a great job at that. Um, you know, Ghostbusters got ported to another. Nothing, nothing like Pitfall. I mean, Pitfall got ported to every game. We used to joke it was on a Timex watch by the time we were done. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so yeah, I I didn't. Get, tend to get involved in the ports of my games. Well, how, I mean, uh, knowing that you take ownership of these titles and it was very important at uh, Activision that your name was on the box and you, you have a uh, you have an attachment to it. You're the author of this game. Your reaction to these ports, did you did you look favorably upon them or were you were there things that just made your eye twitch like, "Oh man, why did they do that?" I don't remember um, Activision allowing anything out that I would twitch at. <laughs> okay. um, you know, basically, the interesting thing about most ports is they're being ported to newer hardware. So they have fewer of the challenges of the older hardware to deal with. And so, you know, if you're given a perfect spec that says, here's the game, you know exactly how it's supposed to move, how it's supposed to play, how fast the animations should occur, they're right there in front of you, you can replicate them and um so generally the ports all came out just fine yeah yeah and well the reason i asked was the uh, a lot of us ghostbusters nerds we love the the end game screen on the nes version that i think is a result of localization from whoever the J the japanese uh, developer was but you know it says something to the effect of congratulations you have completed a great game go rest hero that that kind of thing that wasn't in your commodore version and i I wondered if you saw that and if you thought, oh, boy, come on, guys. You you nailed it to a T, and then you get to the end of the game, and that one tiny detail just sort of slips things up. No, it never bothered me. I mean, I didn't um, particularly care for the ending of the Commodore 64 version. I was completely out of time, completely out of RAM, completely out of ROM, completely sure. out of disk space. And um, you cross the streams, and it basically says game over. Right. I mean, you know, you'd really like to have a huge explosion or a big... You know, reward. Um, one of the most interesting, um, I don't know, aspects of designing video games on limited systems is sometimes the greatest special effects are for negative events. And, um, you know, great big explosion, you make it really cool, and then you say, wait a minute, that's the coolest thing. you got to die to see it. Um, so, you know, I've always tried to avoid wasting too much of the resources of the game on things that happen when something negative happens. But at that point, I would have loved to have put something, you know, very positive, very impressive for a, for an ending. And there was just nothing left. No ROM <laughs> left, no no memory left. So I don't remember exactly what happened, but it seems like you crossed the streams and it just kind of 
went to an end screen. Yeah, I think the orange, the orange screen comes on and says, uh, you, you've saved the world, here's your account number, if I remember correctly. And, yeah, uh, I don't know, something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, and, I mean, it was a great relief after you got two guys past that Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. That was one of the most challenging parts of the game uh, for me. I was trying to sneak people by him. Hadn't thought about it till this very moment, but you might describe that as the first boss monster encounter ever. Oh, I mean, that's true. Yeah, you... you <laughs> You have to make it to that final boss. Jeez, that's that's totally true. Uh, and and one of the other tiny details that I always loved was when you captured one of the ghosts. You know, the guys would dance. Uh, is that a little nod then to your uh, your walk cycle sprite uh, that you had created uh, way back when? No, again, it's uh, you you, you got to have some sort of a positive um, reinforcement for doing something good, and we were always so limited on memory and time and art resources and such that I probably said, well, here's what I can do and it'll have to be good enough. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, given, given the computing power, uh, even on our mobile devices now with, with all of the hardware that you have uh, at your disposal, do you ever, do you ever reminisce on the Ghostbusters title or, or any other of your titles and say, boy, you know what? I wouldn't, I want to do that. I want to revisit that and redo things now with everything that I have available to me. Well, it's kind of the opposite of that. I I loved the challenge of working on the Atari 2600 and um the puzzle of the aspect of trying to trying to get the chip designer to shake his head some more and say, "Geez, how did you do that?" <laughs> um you know, so I would I would go back and do an Atari 2600 game just for the fun of that rather than going the other direction and saying, you know, with current hardware what cool stuff could sure. i do now i always want to look at what at the console i'm looking at and saying all right what's the coolest thing i can do on this console but um you know i just love those good old days yeah well i mean given i don't know the popularity of the nes classic and and all of these uh sort of the return to form for all of the games from the 70s, 80s, and, and early 90s, uh, you know, may, maybe you uh, might be able to do such a thing. What what are you working on at the moment? Well, what I'm doing now is much more boring. Um, I work as an expert witness for uh, patent and technological litigation. Basically, with 35 years of experience, having been in the room when when some of this technology was created and understanding the technology to the level that I do, um, I end up writing reports and explaining to courts and such how things worked back then and why this shouldn't be a patented product or whatever, why this patent was should never have been issued or vice versa. And, um, you know, it's it's not as exciting as, as writing video games, but it turns out that the uh, video game business has a lot of age discrimination, and you, you find everybody thinking that younger people can make games better than more experienced mm -hmm. people. And in, in the expert witness field, it's the exact opposite. The more experience you have, the more valuable right. your opinion is. And so that's my day job. But I still dabble in games. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, are you still uh, working on anything independently uh, and trying to put, put some games together on your own? I do some of that all the time. Um, unfortunately, it's just not financially viable. Sure. You know, with two and a half million games in the App Store, 
uh, or two and two and a half million apps. I don't know what it is. One and a half million games, probably. The um, the ability to make money with any of this stuff is just not worth my time when I've got other people demanding my time, and um, it's valuable to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think I may speak for a lot of people that I would be. I'd love to see a new port of the Ghostbusters game. If you ever sit down and say, "Oh boy, what do I what do I do next?" Uh, if if you know, just if you're feeling the the hankering to dive back into an old project, we I think we would all yeah, yeah. enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sequels are never as good as the original. Although Pitfall <laughs> Two was better than Pitfall, but um, I suppose I could someday. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, Pitfall, same thing with the. Uh, once you have a little bit of extra breathing room on those cartridges or once uh, I think it was on the PlayStation one, the pitfall game, I I must've played that, that one a million times as well. But um, yeah, it's uh, I'd I'd love to see what you could do with it. We'll see. All right. I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, Excellent. Well, Chris, uh, did I leave anything out? Anything? uh, Chris is also a game developer up in in Vancouver. So I, I would be terrible if I didn't ask him if we left anything out. Uh, I was just kind of curious as to, you said that um, uh, you guys, you got a real early look at Ghostbusters and decided, well, this could be pretty cool, but you, you know, pretty much like everybody, uh, everybody knew it was cool. Nobody knew that it was going to explode like it did uh, as the pop phenomena that summer. Uh, By the end of that year, you know, what was, what was your reaction to, you know, was it bittersweet to be basically the 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 most pirated game of that year as a game developer i mean everybody has their uh please don't do that and boy it's also slightly flattering so i was kind of curious what your reaction was when you found out that ghostbusters was running rampant well i'd have to say my reaction is similar to what you've heard um you know when i'm making video games full-time i can make a new better creation you know next time than i did last time i'm not at all worried about having to cling to a successful product from the past um so it it's it is the sincerest sincerest form of flattery for people to copy my games um and you know it's actually funny i probably shouldn't go into this but um that the whole concept of copyright didn't exist until the 20th century because as far as Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci was concerned, if you wanted to draw a picture that looked sort of like a woman half smiling, go ahead. It's your painting, and this one's my painting, and that's your painting, and you have to create it, so it's yours. I'm not worried about it, you know. But when you got to the point where you could Xerox things and copy things in other ways, they came up with copyright laws and, you know, trying to protect the original concept. Um, so if you look at some of these things as a, yes, it's a work of art, but it's also extremely complicated technical project. And if you do the work, you know, you own it. Um, there are people who disagree with me, you know, constantly trying to protect copyrights and trademarks and that sort of thing, and that's fine. But, um, you know, if I make a game and it goes out there and it inspires people to make a game somewhat like it, it doesn't bother me at all. Well, I mean, and that's that's interesting because you were also, you know, manufacturing and distributing th- through Activision, right? So I'm sure that that had had to irk the company a little bit too. That so many people were making 
copies of these tapes, copies of these floppies, uh, and, and passing them around. Yeah, I mean, there was an issue. There was a period of time when we were putting product out on uh, floppy disk that there was rampant copying. And, you know, I, I'm differentiating the issue of someone else going out and making a game that's like mine and someone you know, literally copying the disk and and not allowing Activision to have the sales right. for which they paid. Um I, I also, but I do look at that issue from a slightly different angle. I mean, the if you look at a game, a blockbuster game being made today that costs a hundred million dollars or more, um, if you enjoy playing games like that, you should go out and make sure that you've paid full price for it. Because if Activision doesn't get enough money you know, from the sales of these games to turn around and make the next $100 million game, they won't. Right. So you're really biting yourself in the foot if you are, you know, pirating the game. And um, you know, I just try to remind people of that. I said, you know, you could <clears throat> you could pirate that game and have it for free and never see another blockbuster game that you enjoy. Go ahead. You know? <laughs> yeah, hope, hope you like that game enough that you don't want to have any more of them. Yeah. Exactly. Um. Well, and and I don't know why that that reminded me of something, uh, David. And this may be so long in the past, you may not know this. I apologize for it being so trivial. But there was a in a pack in inside the Ghostbusters game that was sort of like a sell sheet for all of Activision's games at the time, um, and it had this wonderful line art on it. It was a, a kid sitting at a computer, and coming out of his screen were all of the creations that you guys had done at, at Activision. And I think there was also, it was like Slimer drinking a bottle of wine or, or something something to that effect. But do you recall who, who did that art? I don't recall the art you're talking about. I mean, every one of our games actually had a catalog in it to upsell our other games. Right. Something we've been doing since 1979. Um, and I do sometimes get a question about like who wrote, who drew the cover art for a particular game or whatever. And I was not involved in any of that. I finished the game, and I was heavily deep into my next game while the packaging was being done, while you know the manual was being written, and while those things were being drawn. And um, a lot of that came from um, you know third-party ad agencies, mm. and so even, nobody at Activision may have even known who the, who the artist was, since it was hired by J. Walter Thompson or whatever to do the advertising. Um, so yeah, a lot of that has been lost to history. Yeah. That's interesting. I'd love, love to track that art down or, or that artist just because it's, it's so wonderful, but, um, well, excellent. Chris, uh, any, anything else? Nope. I'm, I'm, I'm happily sated with all my questions. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, David cannot thank you enough. Uh, this has been a wonderful chat. Uh, have certainly enjoyed talking with you and uh, appreciate. I know you're busy, even with uh, your your traveling and trying to work us in your schedule. So appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Always happy to do it when I have the time. <laughs> and we, we're so glad that you did. Uh, thank thank you so much again. Don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go, go, go stoppers. I'm sorry. We'll do it again. We want to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail on our calling line at four seven zero two four two four seven four two. That's 4702-GBHQIC. We also have a Facebook page. And Twitter accounts. Ben is dead. No kidding. Just give me the address. Search Facebook for... The Ghostbusters! Interdimensional Crossrip. On Twitter, look for Troy at Ghostbusters HQ and Chris at Proton Charger. 
Enjoy. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to give us a review on iTunes. Be sure to recommend us to your friends. That makes good sense. Don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Once again, our call-in line is 4702-GBHQIC. That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. All right, so there, there it was. Um, that was awesome. That was really cool. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I know he's he's very he's a man of a few words, and and uh, and I, I love that we were able to coax some stories out of him uh, and and kind of get him because we we've heard there was a video I think that went online I don't know two or three years ago that was from a, a PBS special that they were talking to uh, to him about the Commodore yeah. sixty four and Ghostbusters came up, but. I think this is the Ghost, most we've heard from him. Ghostbusters.net had that clip up. It's still on YouTube, I'm pretty yeah. sure. But uh, but David from the, from the time though, wasn't it from like 85 or 86 yes, though? Yes, it was. Yeah. It was at that time. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to go play the game now. I do too. <laughs> I really do. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something. I actually in the secret studio, uh, Facebook one day popped up one of those little targeted ads. And yeah. Uh, say what you will about Google, etc. Facebook's really good at getting into my pocketbook. <laughs> the amount of, like, like, like people used to sit in front of the TV late night and get suckered into, you know, the the pocket fishermen and all that. And <laughs> no, it's Facebook targeted ads for me. The amount of little things I've bought. Oh, is you're right. I would that. be interested in that. Thank you, I Facebook. Would. Well, one of them is like, do you want the, the tiny little um, retro gaming thing that has like you know 1500 games on it or whatever like some insane amount of games oh, including in the it. commodore it has like c64 uh, games on it it doesn't have the c64 oh. I, th- I think it has the atari 2600 oh man but uh i plugged it in and it's got some sort of grounding fault or something because the sound it has that i gotta now research some way to take that out but i bought it because it was relatively cheap for all those games i'm like uh uh, and yeah, specifically because Ghostbusters was on it, and yeah. I was like, "Well, hot, hot damn!" In the secret studio, I, I don't have a twenty six hundred, and I don't, my SNES is or my NES is long gone. So you do now. Is, I, I may actually go play it. I may. Yeah, that's. I'll I just, wish I had. There, there used to be a Commodore uh, emulator for the iPhone, uh, but Ghostbusters was never. You know, whatever, whatever the equivalent of a ROM for uh, Ghostbusters was yeah. never uh, brought over to it. So. Kind never, of never, never. Yeah, but uh, anyway, so yeah, so that we can go and actually play this game now that we're super excited about for the <laughs> for the five hundredth yeah. time in our lives, five millionth time in our lives, probably. Uh, I was just super happy that he clarified some stuff because in, when we knew we were going to talk to him, I went and sat down and kind of refreshed sure, my memory yeah. of stuff that I had read over the years and stuff like that, and yeah, it just turns out a bunch of it's wrong. Yeah, so, well, I mean that's the that's the internet for you. You can't uh, get, the, the get six week it. development time and and things like that. Uh, you know. Yeah, it's uh, and like I said, it clarified a whole bunch of things like. It's. It was common wisdom that he a uh, one week was spent on the main menu, but to hear him talk about it, that's not the case at all. It sure. Was, it, yeah. it, it, it was quite obviously the last thing he did, and but he kind of and may have his part may have taken a week, but 
he talked about having elements sitting around. Like nobody comes up with a sound driver in that one week right, crunch, right? Right. And, and certainly nobody then, rec- you know, records it and crunches it all down and all this. So he had bits and pieces lying around the the logo that uh, was made and stuff like that. Yeah. And then you know he asked he asked, it wasn't him. He asked another group of the developers at at the company to come up with the bouncy ball thing. And ultimately that one week was not, he created it rather. He, he, he built it from the pieces he had at hand as well as coding a little bit from scratch. So yeah, it kind of expanded on this stuff. Like it was this, he did it in a super short period of time. No, he had, he had months and he had that's six why months, it, yeah. that's why it makes sense that, you know, he, he only saw an early look at it. And yet, at the same time, was able to kind of tweak for right. final movie stuff. This is, you know, uh, he didn't take a week. The main menu, maybe the last week was spent finishing it off, but the pieces, you know, were being built by other people prior to that. And he, comp- you know, and dropping so in the I, theme song and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So all the, all those video game websites out there need to listen to this episode and, <laughs> yeah. and update yeah, update their wiki cite your sources kids cite uh, your sources I'll, that's right get ready ghostbusters wikia because uh you need some updating <laughs> oh man um but anyway so uh so yeah what was that your final thought do you have any other final thoughts for for this episode? we'll be back next week with news uh there has been a little bit that we'll get into like the diamond select toys and some rompers and things like that we'll, we'll chat about next week but uh any any final thoughts uh, on top of that no that's as good a final right. thought as any other than uh quite obviously let's see we're recording as per usual on our wednesday night and as we speak puerto rico entirely without power oh, so boy yeah uh, and, and, and mexico is being just getting hit so hard recently that yeah it's it's <laughs> the trouble with earthquakes is that you don't get a final tally for quite some time and you yeah. know, in the wake of it happening it was like oh 50 people and then by the next day it was 116 and we're over 200 200 now. yeah that's that's not going to stop it's going to take weeks and it's just going to keep going and that's but you know we've heard from some of the fans and the franchises down there you know let's let's you know let's not uh let's not uh what i want to say cherry coating it that's not even a term sure sugar coating it or yeah. sugar coating it yeah cherry coating too cherry coating um yeah this is you know this is a this is a big deal these so even though it sounds like they they're they're all okay they're not all okay you know no, that's, that's gonna take a lot as, of time to rebuild and yeah as the as the you know the the toll rises uh, both the property and all that you know it's impacting their lives one way or another it, just the fact that they're sitting there in a you know in, in the wake of a you know, a city that's been rocked pretty hard. They're 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 alive, thank goodness. Yeah, but, uh, they've got some stuff. And then we haven't, you know, uh, like I said, I, I we heard a little bit about from Puerto Rican fans before the uh, Maria hit, um, and then yeah, almost immediately it was like <laughs> nobody has power. I'm like, we're not going to hear from yeah. them for a few days now. So this is actually that's my final thought. Is I I know I think under conditions like this we all get kind of burnt out <laughs> it's like uh, i put all my you know i put all my intense caring into you know into texas um it's tough this is yeah. this is the part where we kind of got to double down especially like in texas you know that hurricane you know passed through relatively quick florida you know the storm came and went did its damage i still yeah. i think i read yesterday 2.1 million Jeez. people in florida still don't have power still don't and have will power not, and 
water I'm watching from video. You. I'm watching video clips. It's like everywhere else. It's like we're without power, but the pole fell over into a field, so we will pick it up and everything's a okay. I'm looking at footage in Florida. It's like yeah, these power lines. They're now in the middle of a swamp. They're gone. It's a, yeah. It's a it's a little hard to pull these out easily, but so uh, it's going to be weeks. Yeah. And then it's kind of terrifying to think that. You know, until a cell company or something gets a generator going, I don't know when exactly we'll hear you know news out of out of Puerto Rico from the fans there and all that. So you know, by the time you're listening to this, I'm hoping things have started to. That's my final thought. I'm hoping things have started to turn back on. I hope we're getting lots of good news, and I hope everybody kind of you know, you know, go have a go have a snack. Maybe yeah. you know, binge watch something and then stand up and go. Right, I'm gonna go see what I can do to help. What can I do to know. yeah, donate or send food or send water, or whatever yeah, can be done. Yeah, can't stop now. It's, it's, it's I know. It's, it's just sorry, and there's Puerto so Rico. much it's, too. It's it's tough to because we're, there's we're, so many places to invest your attention and your effort and you know the, it's I know, but people uh, people are hurting. So we're we we love all you guys out there. We know that it's. I, tough for a lot oh, yeah. of people at the moment we'll we'll go out on uh, we'll go out on a high note uh my wife's name is maria so she's a little mad that uh <laughs> she shares a name with a devastating with a hurricane. hurricane yeah to which i asked her i was like so how does it feel to share your name with a hurricane she's what about your name and, I'm, and i was like i don't know i'll look it up and it's like oh yeah there was one in you know 2008 it kind of died out over the ocean oh oh there's one in 2002 yeah, no, it didn't do nothing either. Sorry. So she's so she's she's pretty mad. That yeah, that hers has turned Maria. out to be devas turned out to be devastating, uh, and I'm uh, yeah, I'm still alphabetically off the hook. So yeah, Hurricane Chris. That's Hurricane Chris. That's a real Hurricane Maria. Actually, sounds like a really like a hurricane you don't want to mess with. So yeah. it's, it's well yeah. named, I think. Hurricane Bob. Hurricane yeah. Bob. Yeah. Hurricane hur- Hurricane Bobby. <laughs> Yeah, there's no diminutives when you name a hurricane. <laughs> I know. Hurricane Jimmy. What? No. Ricky. Her, yeah, Hurricane Ricky. Ricky. Timmy. <laughs> Susie. Uh, uh, we're joking because Her- that's the only thing we can do, guys. It's I'm all we got. It's all we got. All I'm we not got. kidding. It's, it's, um, I hadn't, you know, I, I don't, I cannot recall a time that in a, it's 2017. Can you think of a time that an entire country has basically blacked out? No. Like communications no. wise? No. And this is after earthquakes and hurricanes and fires and on top of other things too that yeah, that the Puerto Rico's completely incommunicado is oh my god, can't well, can't yeah. even fathom. But the whole the whole the whole uh, Hollywood loves the you know, the solar flares and all that sort of thing that you know, if we lose the infrastructure from a flare or something like that. Uh, now I've gotten a taste of it. I was like, wow, this is really scary. Yeah. And th- to flip it around, imagine being them, right? They're sitting in the middle of the ocean cut off. and Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, And it's gonna, relying upon it, the radio again uh, f- for broadcasts and news and, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, so, anyways, uh, yeah. that's a well, that's a bummer. You shouldn't have asked me what my phone. I know, but it's, it must must be talked about. So, uh, so yeah. So yeah. again, think, thinking about you guys uh, as as always. I know I said it a couple weeks ago as well, but hopefully, if if you are hurting and uh, and and you need help, you know, please reach out to us. Reach out to somebody uh, and and let us know. And um, and if anything, if we can't do anything, hopefully, just listening to a podcast and 
letting us take your mind off stuff at least until we talked about it just now uh is, is helping you as well but yeah l- listen to the podcast and then write in and tell us what, what we you know what facts we got wrong and that way we'll know everything's a-okay everything's so. yeah we're back to the status quo yeah exactly <laughs> all right guys uh until next week uh see you on the other side stay safe Thanks for joining the Ghostbusters Interdimensional CrossRip. Visit us at ProtonCharging.com, GhostbustersHQ.net, and StillPlayingWithToys.net. Hey, you could be one of my two favorite shows. You're kidding me. Oh, great. What was the other one? Bassmasters. It's a fishing show. Everything you're doing is bad. You truly scare me. I want you to know this. Next week, though, Hairless Pets. Weird.